The Man Whore Podcast is sponsored by HotMovies.com. Try out some ethical, paid-for porn for free with none of those hidden fees or secret subscriptions when you sign up at HotMovies.com and use the promo code MANHORE. The Man Whore Podcast would like to thank The Ass Plate. Don't half-ass your meal. Get 20% off with promo code ASSTOMOUTH at theassplate.com. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Man Whore Podcast. What's up all you fan whores, ya whore heads, ya pod sluts, and ya audio lovers? This is Billy Presida, and you are listening to the Man Whore Podcast. Welcome to my show, everybody. How are you doing? I hope you are well. Uh, this week, I've got on professional dominatrix, sex workers' rights activist, and lubricant entrepreneur, lubricantur, <laughs> uh, Mistress Matisse. She's on the show this week, and oh gosh, am I excited about it. Uh, I cannot wait to share her with y'all in a little bit. You know, this whole coronavirus lockdown quarantine situation has got us all making phone calls, doing a lot of Zoom group chats. I uh, I even hosted a Zoom strip show. Hey, money's money. But, you know, I've also been doing this weird thing where I've been uh, using that phone app. You know, the one where we make phone calls. You know, remember phone calls? We once just called people on the phone. Yeah, we called them. We didn't even warn them first. We would just just call. And if you were startled, that was your problem. Uh, it wasn't my job to, to, to see if it's okay to call right now. There's, you know, obviously, I'm sure a lot of us are, are checking in with friends and family and, and loved ones. But there's another type of relationship many of you should be maintaining right now. Casual sexual relationships. Casual sex right now is basically on halt. Ostensibly, like a lot of these casual sexual relationships, um, people are going to want to resume when this is all over. Casual relationships need to be maintained just like your other relationships. That recurring good dick booty call isn't just a sex toy to call upon. It's attached to a human who may be having a tough as fuck time right now. Or she, or she may have just lost her job and could use a surprise from a friend, a friend whose face they sit on, but, you know, a friend nonetheless. And this isn't even about sexting. I'm, I'm not saying um, you should all be sexting everyone all the time, although if you want to, go for it. I'm saying, like, platonic, like, just some non-sexual check-ins on your fuck buddy. Like a human. This is a good time in the world to, like, act like a fucking human. And just, like, see how someone's doing. Just say, are you safe? Are you sane? Are you enjoying Mad Men now that you finally have time to really appreciate it? Are you good? You know, don't just, like, show up in, I don't know, a month or two or whenever we're allowed back outside and then just hit them up with a lot of you up texts. Give a fuck, you know? Give, like, a little bit of a fuck about the people you fuck, okay? Okay. This is a good time to embrace the buddy in fuck buddy. This is a good time to embrace the friend in friends with benefits. Lean into the daddy part of daddy dom. Or maybe not. You know, that could get weird. My bad. Just because they're mostly important to your genital life doesn't mean they don't deserve 
to be thought about when your dick's soft and your panties are dry. I saw this great tweet uh, last month that just has stuck in my head because I couldn't agree more. Um, the tweet comes from someone I, I dig, a, a writer on Twitter, uh, Jamie LeClaire. They wrote, uh, casual sex is not an excuse to treat people poorly. Casual does not equal callous. I'm going to say that again. Casual does not equal callous. Check in on these fuck buddies. Make sure they're doing okay. And you know what? I'm sure like a phone call here or there or like a voice memo message or something cute and non-sexual and human will, uh, will bump you up the rankings of who that person wants to take the clothes off with after, uh, after things resort back to some sort of sexual normal. Um, and by the way, Jamie's handle, uh, their handle is at Jamie J. LeClaire. But now for the fan whore appreciation moment. Okay. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where I have to give a shout out to some of the members of my fan whore community on Patreon. Shout out to Joseph Bradley. Do you know the way to Santa Fe? I drove by Santa Fe, buddy. I could have stopped and said, hey, uh, thank you for being a member. Shout out to Texas Ranger 1215. I mean, if you're going to not use your real name, I totally understand the privacy concern, but come on. What is your first name? Walker, comma? Fun fact about me, if I ever do, if I ever did do like roller derby, uh, my derby name would be Cuck Norris. Fun fact. Uh, I want to say thank you to Mark. I think you stayed uh, around long enough to see my balls um, or my very flaccid shaft, you know, so I hope you enjoyed that bonus content that's available on the Patreon, man. Hope you'll come back sometime. And I want to say thank you to Dominic Nani, who, oh gosh, a Randy Peep Show newcomer. Thanks for all the dicklements. Dicklements, you know, It's it's like a compliment for your dick. There's no way I made that up. Anyways, appreciate you being on board, dude. And you too. Yeah, you, listener person. Yeah, you too can join us today and gain access to sex-positive discussion groups and nearly 200 bonus episodes. As well as like a few fire nudes. Every once in a while, I, I drop a little, you know, NSFW nudie picture. You know, I, I gift you that. And for some of y'all, you're like, ooh, that's what made me unpledge. And I'm like, fair. Uh, but you can join us today. See, I'm just feeling loosey-goosey today. Uh, join us. Come on, Billy. Finish the ask. Get to the URL. I'm getting there. Stop yelling at me. Join us today at patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash podcast. Membership begins at just $2, very affordable, gain all sorts of access to me, gain access to fellow fan horse. And now, Mistress Matisse. I was introduced to Mistress Matisse uh, by, the, by, the, by the Savage Lovecast. Dan Savage's incredibly popular monster sex podcast. Uh, she would be a, a guest on there frequently, helping him out with questions. Uh, especially questions about BDSM and and um, sex work and being a dominatrix. Uh, and I've just, you know, she was one of the earliest people where I was like, when I started this podcast six years ago, I was like, I want to get Mistress Matisse on this show. To me, I was like, getting Mistress Matisse would be huge. 
Because I, I was like, I've listened to so much of her. I followed her on Twitter pretty much since I've been on Twitter. Like, so I don't know. This this was a special one for me. Uh, I recorded this one with her uh, out in Seattle during my road trip. And uh, gosh, it was just a pleasure to get to know this woman a little bit better. And God, it was just like a pleasure to get to meet her and um, learn more about her life. Without further ado, I mean, there's a little more to do. There's a couple of quick ads. And then we're going to get to my conversation with Mistress Matisse. What are, I, I've been to Folsom Street Fair, man. And this is like a large convergence of big furry gay men. And then someone said, oh, it's a whole festival. I'm like, oh, okay. That explains it. And then it was hilarious the last time I was there because it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a good time. I still love that you thought I was, a, I was not only a gay man, but like a gay male escort. And I, 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 just, like, I almost want to say thank you. <laughs> that feels like such a compliment. I was like, I, my profile picture must be cute. Cause it I was is like, cute. As <laughs> cute as this man whore. I just assumed, you know? So yeah, you take it as a compliment. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll say I am here right now with mistress Matisse. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. It's nice to meet you in person. Thank you. Nice to meet you as well. Uh, I like you. You're like, nice to be here in my living room. <laughs> it is nice to be in my living room. My <laughs> living room is really where I like to be if all possible. So. When you go on vacation, do you get like tempted to like, uh, maybe grab a client while I'm here, or do you really have to tell yourself like I'm off? Oh, I I don't have to tell myself I'm I'm out I'm off. Yeah. I mean I I have my very I have I've created a system here that works perfectly for me, uh-huh. right? And I prefer to work in my system. So when I go other places, I'm out. Like I'm not in my dungeon. I'm not in my house. I don't I don't think about it. It doesn't occur to me. I'm totally in the moment. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but when I you know when I'm here in my zone doing my thing, then I'm in it. I'm an introvert and I'm kind of that way. So it's like when I'm doing one thing, I'm totally in it. I don't think of other things. But when I'm doing something else, then I'm totally involved in that. What's your What's your system? Well, I mean, my system Just, is like, you know, I schedule my clients. They come right. here and see me. I understand when that's going to happen and what's going to happen. And I've got it planned in my head what I'm going to do with them in the space that I have. It's just, yeah, it's the way I have everything set up exactly the way I like it. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not tempted to freelance on the road with no equipment and, you know, no, no understanding of what exactly I would do. Yeah. So you're not like when you, if you go visit someone like in a different city, you're just like, I'm not, I'm not trying to also pick up work while I'm no. there. Yeah. I, I have done that. That's I have, good. I have traveled, I've traveled and, you know, and worked along the way. Well, actually, when I moved out here to Seattle, uh, when I was like 20, I think I was about to be 21, it's 20, uh, I was stripping. And at that time in stripping, you could still kind of stop into clubs and just dance for the night. What? And so I was driving across America, like stopping in each town. I think about comedians who drop in and be like, Hey, can I just do a quick five? Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You should I just get a dance. I have this. I have this move I'm working on. You think I can work it out? <laughs> just like I give you a hundred bucks for the house, you know. And they're like, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so I kind of worked my way across the U.S. and I went up to Alaska to dance for the summer because that used to be a big thing that that ladies did because there's it was and probably still is tons of money in Alaska in yeah. the summer. Uh, I don't know, like, it was before the internet, you know, this is how old I am. Uh, so, I like, I didn't know where to go. I just kind of knew generally that there was Alaska, and that's where you went. So, I got in my Honda, and I drove from Florida to Alaska. Like a stripper migration? Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, and I was like, I got to get out of this. I was in Florida. I'm like, I got to get out of here. got to get out of here. So, yeah, I drove and, like, stopped in, like, Nashville and stripped for a night. And I think I stopped in St. Louis and stripped for a night. And I'm pretty sure in Colorado, I stopped and danced for two nights. And I kept waiting to find a city that I liked because I was thinking, I'll go to Alaska, I'll dance for the summer, I'll make a bunch of money, and I'll come back to the 48 and pick a city to live in because I'm not living in the South anymore. Sure. 
And I just kept not singing anything that I liked until I got to Seattle. And I came here and it was like June and everything was green and beautiful. And I was like, and everyone I saw in Seattle was beautiful. Uh. And those two days, like I didn't see an ugly person. So I decided this is it. This is where I'm going. So I went on up to Alaska, um, which was a whole adventure in and of itself, um, and danced up there and then came back here to Seattle. And I've been here ever since. I actually, had, I mean, I'd been to Portland and the, the strip club scene there, it wasn't as great, but I just, my heart was set on Seattle. Okay. Uh, and Seattle is a, not a great town for strippers. I mean, there are strip clubs here, but it's not a very friendly working environment um, as it is in other places, unfortunately. Why, why is it friendlier in Portland? Uh, in Portland, they will let you have alcohol and titties in the same room. Uh-huh. Here in Washington State, you cannot have boobs and alcohol in the same room. It's too much fun. <laughs> The state will not allow it. So it's just juice, juice bars. You can't have a drink. There's no food. Like in Portland, you can get a steak dinner. You can have a drink. You can play pool. It's like a bar, yeah. but with strippers. Now, if they could only have one of those big vending machines they have in the airport where you can like buy electronics and prescriptions. Right. I mean, I'm like, I mean, yeah. great. I don't have to leave. But yeah, Portland's stay totally here. down with that. I can buy an iPhone right? and buy some Advil and <laughs> I wake up hungover. I'm ready to go again. <laughs> so I guess like the, the, on the good side... When you come to a strip club in Seattle, you are here for one reason and one reason and only that is to see some tits, right? Okay. In Portland, people go to strip clubs just to have a drink and kind of watch the dancers, but it's not like always. So um, that must be frustrating for them sometimes. Uh, but uh, I think that their bars are just more friendly and more fun and more uh, – uh, the strip bars here can be kind of a tense place. Yeah. Isn't but, it so weird that the state has such a vested interest in limiting fun? Yeah. Like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like, even, even if it's not – even if it has it's none do with sex like the, whether it's like marijuana or alcohol this is like don't have too much fun it could you guys got to gotta work and, yes. and make money for the gdp you but you can't have any fun doing it like oh no you're not allowed it's just too much fun and no one watching you is like no it's it is it's ridiculous it's it's that the slippery slope kind of you know sort of more liberal fear like if we allow this it will lead to blank you know well, yeah but it's always every time they say it'll lead to blank like the blank is also always more fun than the original thing <laughs> It's so like, well, if we allow fun, it's going to lead to more fun, which could, and take a deep breath, it might lead to even more fun. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. <laughs> Tell me about the, the trip to Alaska. You oh, said that was a hilarious. whole journey. Uh, no one had told 20-year-old me that the Alaskan highway is actually not like I-5 or I-75. or anything. It's not. It's a two-lane gravel cow path. What were, what were you driving at the a time? A Honda Civic. <laughs> I had no idea. I had a handgun that I smuggled across the Canadian border, and I had like a bunch of sex toys Florida. and stripper costumes. Yeah, Florida. Uh, of course, I had a gun. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Give them to you at your sixth birthday down there. Oh, uh, uh, and yeah, I had no idea. I had never seen snow. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. Luckily, the the one thing about driving the Alaskan Highway in the summer, particularly, is that. Any car can only drive X number of miles in a certain day. There are, there were at that time, there were only hotels like every certain number of hundreds of miles. So you saw the same people on the road every day and you stayed at the same hotels with them every night. You just race? Well, I would know it was like room three is. It's like when I say a a two lane gravel cow path, I am not exaggerating. It is, it is, it it can't be like really. Uh, uh, an asphalt road because it freezes and yeah, buckles. Nice. So it has to be just a gravel road because it has to be able to flex. So it's literally not a paved road as you and I understand it. Um, and we were up in like, we were in the Alka, in the Yukon territory. Okay. And yeah, like I'm on a phone calling my mom and I can hear like the relay signal delaying my voice. I'm like, I am in the middle of nowhere. You're just like, I'm going to, I might die. You could, but. 
I mean, Alaska, the Alaskan wilderness has a way of making you as a human understand how puny and fleeting you are in the world's eye. Like these trees and these mounds have been here for centuries. I am just a dot to them. And so you don't really think of like other people assaulting you. You just think of, I'm so insignificant to this planet. And it's a good feeling. It reminds you that, yeah, no, this, this planet was here before we were. God willing, if we don't ruin it, it'll be here after I die. Although, you know, who knows now. But it, it was sort of a, a, a good, humbling experience to be, uh, to, yeah, be in the middle of nowhere. No cell phone. It's before cell phones. You're just like, okay, here I am, and I'm just going to keep going my way uh but you know when you're 20 years old you have no idea like you just do shit you don't care yeah just jump off cliffs and you know (laughs) go strange places and do crazy things why 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 is there such a why is there a stripper migration to alaska or why was there oh because the guys work on the fishing boats there every year in the summer uh there's a bunch of guys who work up there in the fishing boats and in the places that process the fish uh so there's a huge summer trade and there's a whole bunch of guys who get paid a pretty good sum of money and there's nowhere to go and nowhere to spend it except nothing you know, to do and no one to do and right. they're like okay so uh so yeah you go up there and it was uh definitely my first experience with meeting a lot of girls from other countries uh at the strip clubs who were working there russian women really Asian women yeah i mean well russia because i could see them from my right? house <laughs> and that was my, my first experience with meeting a large groups of russian women and i was like oh and yeah then i thought oh we're kind of close to there aren't we it's like uh, this weird seasonal work tourism. Oh yeah, you know? I don't. I don't know if it still is, but it definitely was back in the day. That was where you went to just make a pile of money in a short, short time. Oh, and the wow. sun never—it never gets dark in Alaska in the summertime. So the, it's, it's interesting. Like you can be in the club for like nine hours and come out, and it's you know four a.m. Sun's still up. It's still light, and it's a weird kind of. It's like being in a movie. <laughs> Like it never ends. Like the you know the sun like never a casino sets. where it's like yeah we're yeah. just gonna pump you with fresh air and and light nonstop yeah. until you're done. <laughs> yeah, so it's the whole interview was kind of fun yet surreal. It's kind of like a low level acid trip the whole time I was there. Just the kind of weirdness of it. And Alaska is a place kind of like Florida that attracts people who don't really fit anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't you fit in too well? Uh, it was cold. To, <laughs> way oh, too I cold meant like what well, you said. It attracts people. Like you said, Florida and Alaska attract similar people. Yeah. Who feel like they didn't fit in? So yeah, like, I mean they they're both a little weird places. Like you know, Florida is kind of yeah. a strange place, and wacky things happen there. And Alaska is sort of like that in a way too. Were you a strange, wacky gal? Um. Well, I'm flattered <laughs> that you don't automatically think so, given that uh, I was a stripper and now I'm a dominatrix. I thought that sort of. But like that's the thing me. to me in my fucking whore life. I'd be like, yeah, that's, oh, wow, <laughs> what. So someone says there's some sort of like actuarial accountant. I'd be like, that seems weird. That does seem weird. Like, why would it's like, I don't know what it is, but it sounds strange. And dangerous. I'm sure it's dangerous. <laughs> I'm sure it's dangerous. Uh, yeah, I think I'm a weird person. Uh, I'm not, not a socially conforming person, that's for sure. Uh, so. What, what, so when did you stop stripping? Uh, I danced off and on probably until around 1999 or so. And that's when I, like, I had been dabbling in being Mrs. Matisse. I, I was also, I had escorted a lot during the same time. Okay. So I stripped and escorted a lot in that year. And then uh, around 1999, like, we, like, firmly switched it. But now I am being Mistress Matisse. Okay. And and why why did you, why the switch? And also, why was the switch ultimately to BDSM and, or to being a pro-dom and not an escort? Since you, well, it seems like you were like trying out the different sex work options. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was an escort a lot. Um, yeah. I worked for agencies and did independent work and stuff, and uh, and continued to do so occasionally, even after I started being Matisse. Oh. Um, 
But I, you know, I had done those things and I wanted to do something else. And BDSM appealed to me because it was, you know, the field of, of sex work where one has the most overt control. Uh, and I am a kinky person in my regular life. And then it was at that point that I felt I had enough kink experience to say, I am a professional. I can do these things to you with skill and accuracy and safety. And now I'm going to. Uh, and of course, you know, I, I, like I'd been a dancer, I'd been an escort, I had been all these things. I had no idea that being Mrs. Matisse would be the thing that I would become known for. Uh, it was just (laughs) another thing that I was going to try. And so I did. And then it kind of took off and I'm like, oh, this is the thing. Okay, here we go. So we're doing it. (laughs) And and you were already well-versed in BDSM then. I feel like I, I meet, you know, I hear these like horror stories of people who, oh my gosh, just to see you physically touch (laughs) Just, knowing exactly what I was going to bring yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Please, please continue. Yeah, there's there are people who do not do this safely, and that troubles me a great deal. It, it, do, is it that people think it's just an easy paycheck? It's like, well, I'm a I'm a hop blonde, and I can buy that leather outfit, and I'll buy a thing, and then I can just beat people up. Well, like, do they think it? Is it that they think it's way simpler than it is, or they do think it's simpler than it is? Um, you know, popular media certainly represents it as being simpler. If you watch Fifty Shades of Grey, you think, oh well, it's nothing to it. You just start smacking people around. Even and- that new show on Netflix, Bonding, it just makes it look like, ah, are you a grad student? Are you hot? Can you like put on a dom voice? Then buy yourself some leather, girl, and and beat people up. You know, I understand why it happens. It's like sex work is a place where women turn in economic anxiety, uh-huh. and it's an obvious choice. Being a dom seems like you have more safety. It seems like you have more control over the situation that you're in. That's largely an illusion. If you're alone in the room with a man, you're alone in the room with a man. And what's going to happen is going to happen. It has nothing to do with whether you're an escort or whether you're a dominatrix, whether you're a stripper. What what title you are has done not affect that. But to a young girl especially, it seems like, oh, this is powerful. I'm going to be powerful. Yeah. Not understanding that like, that's not what title you give yourself is not really what gives you power. Yeah. It's the situation that you're in and how you how you create your sex work career that tells me how, how whether how you're going to be safe as a person. Now that doesn't speak to the issue of how you're going to be unsafe to your clients, but so that's kind of a separate issue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But people gravitate towards dominatrix because they think it's a powerful thing, and sim- simply by calling themselves that, they will be safe from unwanted yeah. aggression. And, and do you? Th- I mean, do you think like the whole kind of hierarchy thing plays into it too? Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. oh, it's like I need to do some sex work to make some easy cash, but I don't want to. I don't want fuck people yes. for money. That was definitely the second that I would get to. Is there's just this perception that being a dom is like a clean sex work job, and yeah. other other jobs are, are dirty. And yeah, that's hierarchy in action. Um, and that's of course not true. Like I put my hands on people. I have been. <laughs> there is no bodily substance that I have not encountered during a session. Oh. Not a single one. I promise right. you. And you had like you know people are people. We are we all have these bodies, and they all do these things. I'm not easily squicked, right? That's not a thing that really bothers me. And everyone is beautiful on the inside. Did the hierarchy play, did that kind of decision of like, oh, well, be, uh, being a dom is like the clean version, did, did that inform your decision absolutely at no, all? Absolutely not. Okay. No, that, that like you had no issue with the escorting. You were like, no, I like just doing this other no, thing better. No, I was a fucking great escort. I was, <laughs> I, I was hey, an okay I stripper. Bet. Yeah, I was. <laughs> there are, there are, yeah, there's reviews of my old escort name out there still somewhere. But so yeah, I was a kick-ass escort. And I, you know. Oh, you had a different personality for. Oh yeah, I had a whole different name or, and persona and all cool. that stuff. Uh, 
I was an okay stripper. I wasn't a great stripper. I was okay. Uh, <laughs> but it did, being a stripper teaches you how to walk, because you know, you make money, you walk up to a hundred different guys a night and go, hey, I look sexy, give me some money. Uh, <laughs> no? Okay. Next up, hey, look, I'm sexy, you should give me some money. No? So it destroys any fear in you of just going up to somebody and saying what you want. And that actually came into play a lot, both as an escort and as a dance, as a dominatrix, being able to say, here's what I've got here's what I want, like, let's negotiate this in a really clear and meta way, like a stripper does. Right. Were you very, were you at all uncomfortable in the beginning with that negotiation? You know, I've always been a really sexual person. Um, I actually, all of my sex life was inside my head until I was 17 years old. I was raised in a Catholic family and I went to Catholic school and very protected childhood and stuff. And then I went to college and things changed. Um, But I knew in my head all along that when the time came, I was going to be a really sexual person. Uh, And so certainly I can think of a few times I was nervous, you know, in the beginning, like, am I going to do it wrong? Do I look stupid? Oh, I don't know what to do, you know. But I've just always been really comfortable with myself sexually and comfortable with other people sexually too. And uh, and so how long have you been Mistress Matisse? So right around 2000 is when I got a column in uh, a local alt-weekly paper here called The Stranger. Uh, and again, this is sort of before the internet was really part of our lives the way that it is now. So If being- you guys don't know what a newspaper is... <laughs> It was like, you know those books you also don't read? Imagine it was like bigger and, and, and more boring. And like thinner and flatter, but larger but with pictures. But very cheap. Very yeah. cheap. Super cheap. Uh, but you Free. still w- will try to steal it. Uh, <laughs> that's what a newspaper used to be. So I... So, uh, um, oh, wait. I guess we should explain. There used to be a thing called the news. That's... Oh, we have really missed... Uh, oh, goodness. <laughs> right? Oh, God, Lord have mercy. It seems like a million years ago in another <laughs> land. But yes, back in the day, children, there were newspapers. And uh, I had a column in The Stranger for about 10 years. And it was just a little tiny column. Uh, but I got to say a lot of things that uh, I wanted to say. And I created a little following here in Seattle. And I was on Dan Savage's podcast uh, a number of times because he and I are old buddies. Yeah. Uh, we from, from The Stranger, I assume. Uh, we met before that. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. We were all drinking buddies back. Um, here's a funny story about how I met Dan Savage. Please. Um, I had been in Seattle about a month. And I was living with two of my friends in a room about this size, which is not a large room that we were sitting in. We were all staying in it with all our stuff. A standard New York apartment. Yeah, there's <laughs> three of us in there together because uh, I was still getting a job and getting myself set up. And I was reading this paper. Uh, and in this paper, there were these things called personal ads, which were like grinder or tender, except in print and really, really small and no pictures. Uh-huh. No pictures. It was like a Russian roulette. <laughs> like This person Aww. seems appealing based on their words only. <laughs> But I answered a personal ad that said, um, I believe, now, children, this was how we spoke back then. Do not take this as offensive language now. It said, two fag masters, two dyke mistresses seek appropriate play toys. You know, answer to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, how can there be anything wrong with this ad? So <laughs> I answered it. Um, and there were these there were two couples, which were a lesbian couple and a gay male couple, who were looking for people to play with. And I wound up having this great long-term affair with the lesbian couple who were amazingly hot and beautiful and sexy in all the ways. But one of the men was Dan Savage. And so uh, he wound up being single and I was single at the same time. So we used to go out drinking and dancing all the time. All the time. We would go get high shit and dance, you know, First Avenue and hold each other's hair back and all the things. So Uh that is how we go back. That is how we go back. So yeah, that was like... A long time ago. 
I also understand why I haven't heard that story on the show, though. <laughs> I was like, he, he gets tweeted enough as is. <laughs> I know. This was way before Terry, people. This was way before his husband. This was long, long ago. So, yes, that was, but that was the thing. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, so, so y'all, so you didn't like play with him? Or? No, no. He, he's strictly gay. He right, no, no. Not... I, knew, I, I got that. But I was, why? So they were sharing an ad? Were yeah. they like, let's split the cost of they an were ad? Like, they were sort of approaching it as like, <laughs> yeah. let's make social friends that we might go on to play with sort yeah. of thing. They were trying not someone to be who too hard. the ad for the gals, like, yeah, yeah, but you might be somewhere we want to hang out with. Right, right. It was, well, that's they, cool. They were just kind of trying to do it in a something more or less like, you know, fraught with, you know, stakes or high kind of thing. <laughs> like, let's just meet some people and have some fun. And, and so, yeah. And, and it worked out really well like we like i met some other fun people that they had met too and i made friends those people and it was actually a great little introduction to seattle kinky society so i just lucked out that way well as you started doing media did that was that at all nerve-wracking to be a sex worker who was kind of out i mean not under your real name but still putting yourself out there as a as a voice i have so much privilege you know i mean even before i was a dom like i mean being a white cis middle class dominatrix is pretty much as high as you can go on the privilege ladder in sex work yeah Uh, i mean maybe being like an avian porn star like is probably (laughs) higher but it's 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 up there but even before that i am a white person and i'm a cis person and so i have you know even when i before i knew how to enunciate this clearly i had a level of privilege that allowed me to do that were you conscious of that then or on an instinctual level i was okay. yeah i mean i worried about it some but i hey, like what's really gonna happen to me attitude? i wasn't quite that okay. sanguine but i was like i'm pretty sure they're not gonna do anything to me um i was i was careful in how i advertised once i started being more public uh-huh. uh, i was very mindful of things i said uh again this is where being a dom kind of helps you a little bit you can you can screen very carefully for people who say any kind of wrong words and at that time it was not at all common for uh seattle police to try and and entrap dominatrixes i'm not speaking for now i'm talking sure, about sure, them sure. um <clears throat> at that time there had been there was very little police activity directed towards doms at all and so i kind of felt yeah okay uh-huh. i i, I I, I was nervous, but I, but I also, like, I was already, like, I had cut my teeth doing, like, AIDS activism as a teenager in high school. Really? Yeah. My uncle died from AIDS when I was a young girl, and it had a prolonged effect on me. And so, um, in the 80s, when I was still in high school, I wanted to go to these protests and stuff, and my parents encouraged me to do that. So, I you know, went to protests and went to rallies and began to understand like, okay, there's a system here. And I also did um, uh, pro-choice stuff then uh-huh. too. So I, I came out of that. So you back. were a rowdy teenager. Yeah, I, I've always been like a rebel rouser. I've always <laughs> pushed back. And um, my mother told me I was at home recently and she's like, fair has always been a really big issue to you ever since you were a little girl. Fair. Like you have a sense. And I, I, I so... I, I, Same. Did your mother ever? My mom would always be like, "Fair is just a word that describes the weather." Yeah, I. I that's what she give me all the time. I'd be like, "Why? That's not fair. This isn't fair." She's like, "Life's not fair." Well, I got that too. But <laughs> my first of all, well, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Like, if you don't think it's yeah. right, that was. You know, and my dad especially would challenge me, like, "Okay, you don't think that's right? So what are you going to do?" And I was like, "Okay." Were so they I, on board with those issues too? Or? Um, I mean, not uh, certainly. Because like, were they of, joining you at the rally? My mom that? went to some of the, the the aid stuff with me because, like, when my uncle died, we had trouble finding a funeral home who would take his body and bury it because the AIDS stigma was so intense. And I'll never ever forget that being with my mom in funeral homes and watching her cry because these people wouldn't take her brother's body. 
How, how many homes did you have to go to to get one to say yes? Um, I was with her uh, at one. I think there were three or maybe four that turned us down before we got to one that, that would take us. And even then, they acted – I mean, they came in like hazmat suits. And I'm just like – it was it, and it was my first experience of seeing stigma in action and seeing how it hurt my family. Um and I think it really created an impression of me that's never left me. Like, that is wrong. You don't treat people like that. That's a human being, and it's wrong. Before before your uncle contracted HIV, did you have – I mean, it could, and it could have – you could have also just been at an age where you weren't thinking of it, but did you have a – a stigmatized view of HIV until it hit home. No, no. Um, I, I don't think I knew anything about it. I, yeah. I knew in a kind of vague way that my, my uncle wasn't married. He was really handsome. He was really funny. He was my favorite uncle. But I, I knew there was something kind of different about him. And when my mother formally told me, your uncle is gay, I was like, yeah, that kind of seems okay. right. I could figure that out. So... Uh, there was always this kind of hint unspoken in the family that we don't mention, you know, why he's not married, you know, why he never brings a girlfriend to Thanksgiving or anything like that. Uh, but when it became overt, then we all had to talk about it. Did you know you were bisexual back then? I, I didn't exactly, but I knew that I was very sympathetic to my uncle and never had any thought of like, well, that's wrong. It's like, no, that's just the way that he is. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's, it's fine. He's a wonderful person and I love him. So it's okay. Uh, but it, yeah, that's probably something that really impacted me in a really meaningful way. What, what was, what was that, what was the fight like back then? He did not, it, he was one of the first, in the first ranks to die. So it did not take long. I saw him after he had had, um, some, uh, shingles, that's what they call it. And yep. his, he had a really handsome face and it was all scarred and we couldn't see out of one eye anymore. And I saw what had happened to him. And I saw that people didn't like Ronald Reagan wouldn't say, say the, the word, word AIDS, right? No one would help, and people turned their backs, and it was just so wrong. It was so wrong. So well, not to be all heavy, I no, you know, please. Kind of, I mean, it's fine. Look, it's not a comedy show because one, <laughs> I'm barely funny, so <laughs> I don't like to falsely advertise. Um, but no, there's, it's a very real thing, and 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 there's a lot of people just don't know. I mean, look, I wasn't I wasn't born time to like experience that. It was brutal. I mean, even as a child, you know, and with a you know a young tween child's understanding of what's happening, uh, it was. Yeah, it was sort of devastating. And to see all these these men that I came to see as like beautiful, colorful, interesting gay men um, and, and just see them be sick and to be dying and no one would help. And, and yeah, the stigma. Uh, like I was – by the time I became an escort, AIDS was sort of a thing that was more in the rearview mirror. But it was still around. Okay. And there was still definitely some stigma about it even then. So even being a heterosexual female escort, people kind of had an AIDS stigma towards you uh-huh. at that point. Because um, back then it was like drug users, whores, and, and gay men. Yeah. That was like the thoughts. Right, right. And if you got it, then you must have been one of those three. Do you, were you old enough to remember when Magic Johnson uh, – I I know I know all about them. I knew all. About, I think I knew it when I was a kid, but I don't think like, I I don't I don't remember where I was. Really, didn't make type of thing. Me, but. but I know how I I do remember the, the hearing just how much that normalized things and made it, how it was like a game changer. It was a game changer. Like it scared the shit out of a lot of straight people, and it made them understand that this was not something they could just say. Oh, this is a gay thing. I don't I don't shoot drugs, and I'm not a fag, so I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Uh, it changed. The, yeah, it did change the game. I will say that um, looking back, I can see the rise of BDSM in popular culture is, in my opinion, a direct result of the AIDS crisis. Because it was a safer sex option? Yeah. 
Yeah, like the the whole fascination with like latex, for example, is directly an offshoot of of AIDS having been a thing, and people wearing latex dresses and latex, you know, suits and coating themselves in rubber was this symbolic way to sort of embrace and yet en- enclose yourself and make yourself safe. Right. Uh, you can was... walk into a, like a gay atmosphere, fear, uh, fear fe- feeling guarded mm-hmm. from the the literal environment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yet it made things like like body fluids so, like they're so taboo and so forbidden and yet even more alluring and attractive in some ways. Uh, so in that era, like doing blood play and stuff was this really fucking super edgy thing. That's incredible. And, and so wait, um, you must have like been doing reading to be able to do any blood play needle stuff back then. I was taught at the hands of older, you know, mainly older gay men who taught me about this because, you know, who they were in the scene and they, they knew the situation and they obviously knew what the risks were. And were um, they doing it safely? I mean, yeah, are absolutely. They, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. Like o- the older queer people in BDSM taught me 90% of what I know that is good and valuable and they taught me well. And that's what I think is different now about the scene is that because there are so many points of entry for people uh-huh. and because the there is not as much of a community insistence on certain safety standards as there used to be. Right. Um, it's easier for people to get in and over their heads and perhaps make a mistake um, that with education could have been avoided. Like these, like these inexperienced in BDSM doms who just want the quick buck and then end up fucking harming people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen some of these videos where it's like that you watch and it's hard because you're seeing them like tear up flesh and it's just but they don't fucking I, i'd like to think that they're not malicious uh, i like to think it's some have malice i like to think it's just have like ignorance and not knowing better and not even realizing the harm they're causing um but of course that would require us to talk to like i don't know kids about sex and that would be too scary it, it would be <laughs> well and it's there are certain there are things that look really scary but are not in fact truly dangerous to someone's body. And when I say dangerous, I mean something is going to permanently damage your body in a way that it will affect your life for the rest of your life. That's when I say damage. Like a bruise or a cut or like that's going to heal, you're going to be fine. Uh, but like beating someone on the kidneys, yeah, huh. you could like lead to, that could lead to damaging their organs. That's going to be an ongoing issue in their life. So you can't damage people. Uh, but sometimes things that like I do scenes that look really bloody, but it's like we've, there are 10,000 tiny cuts all over his body and like two drops of blood have come out, but it looks like there's tons of blood right. everywhere, ah, but it's not really that dangerous. But things like choking somebody are extremely fucking dangerous. And yet you see that done just casually all the time. So people are afraid of the wrong things, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Well, when you were learning about BDSM, even before you were pro-doming, like, did you have tr- difficulty learning a particular thing? Was there anything that were like, Oh, I can't, I can't get the the snap in the wrist, or I keep, I keep my aim is bad on this, or, or, or you're like, I just don't know how to find the vein, whatever it is. It's like the only thing I can think of is that I'm not. Um, there was and still pretty is uh, a big part of the BDSM community that's into elaborate rope bondage, um, shibari they call yeah, it. Yeah. Um, I. Do not remember how to tie knots, how to save. I'm like, the rabbit goes around the tree and then through the hole. I'm just like, oh, damn it. And I've had, you know, one of Loop, my- Loop, swoop, and pull. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of partners who were really good at, at this kind of rope bondage, and they tried to teach me knots, and I try to learn the knot, and then I forget. So, uh, yeah, I'm not very good at knots. I'm just not. So I use a lot of buckling cuffs. Okay, okay. And and so back then, you know, so in like the early mid 2000s, what was advertising as a pro dom like? It's obviously 
incredibly different than how it is now in the you know the legal times we're now and and it's very different from what it was like you know four years ago before all that shit went down the late 90s and the aughts were in in my lifetime the golden age the golden age, the golden age. um a lot of it was we're in- printing money <laughs> <laughs> yes cash money uh, so you had ads like in the back of the alt weeklies. That okay. was the common thing to do. Um, some people put them in, in the daily paper, like in the sports section. That was not a way that I usually went. Uh, and there were a couple of there were some magazines. There was uh, uh, there was a magazine called Dominatrix Directory International or DDI, as it was fondly known. And it was a big, thick, glossy magazine that came out like four times a year, and it was sold in adult bookstores and stuff. Uh, so you could get in that. That was expensive as shit, but that was like the gold standard. Or you could also have, there was these things called swingers magazines. They also sold in adult bookstores that were, again, basically little tiny personal ads, just column after column of, of ads that were mostly like swinger couples and or guys looking for women, but had some- So a swinger magazine would just be ads for yeah, swingers think, yeah, the whole way? Oh, wow. Yeah, like the, the, the outside- I've been like tips for like, here's like the type of quiche to bring to your next- play date. <laughs> a few times. Yeah, sometimes there would be like an article or something in there, usually terribly written. Uh, yeah, they, occasionally, but a lot of them would just be these cheap newsprint yeah. kind of smeary paper with a four color on the outside with a dirty picture on it. And you would put your ad in there and yeah, like the doms would say something like, doms and submit and you dirty sissy worm boy. And it was just very like weird, like jargon heavy nonsense. And then what they had to do is they had to write a letter and ma- and put it in an envelope and mail it to the magazine. And then the magazine would forward it to you. That took about four to six weeks for that whole process. Just to do one ad. Just Yeah. Like to get one client from what ad that was. So you had to plan ahead. Oh, oh, oh. The client, someone see in the paper and they have to. Yeah. The cli- oh my gosh. So yeah, you're in turn on Internal investments took forever. Well, yeah, it was it was a long term thing. Definitely, it was. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a little more. You had to plan ahead, like to be in the yellow pages. You had to like plan ahead, like a year in advance, to get your ad in and get it all paid. It was a lot more complicated, which is why we all fucking loved it when we could do internet ads, and that's yeah. why it was the golden age. Well, what was the? Uh, and again, I, I know you know depending on what jurisdiction you're in, doming you know is allowed or not allowed, or certain types of acts are allowed not allowed. So back then, like, how did you have to veal or did you have to mask what it was in the ad or? Um, not here. I mean, there are places like, for example, in Boston, and I'm pretty sure in the whole state of Massachusetts, uh, BDSM is really strictly regulated and it's extremely illegal to like hit someone with a paddle or something like that. They call that assault and they, for some reason, police it really rigorously. Oh. Um, I know that that has been true. I'm not sure if it's still true to this day, but I'm pretty sure that it is. Once again, don't have too much fun. It could lead... To more fun. <laughs> we can't have that. We can't have that. Uh, so, yeah, I've never worked in a place where being a dom was really strongly um, chased out. Yeah. yeah. There was a number of years where I, I still had to answer a live phone because there were a lot of guys who didn't, like older guys who didn't do the internet. Yeah. Uh, and were still like finding my number in magazines or things. That, I mean, I, I like... 10 years after I stopped publishing a phone number, I was still getting calls on that number from random strangers who had found it somehow, somewhere, and were calling me. And it was just fascinating to see how people had clung to that old paper thing for years after it had really long since served its purpose. What were like the old... What were like the OG forums or places to post? And, huh. I mean, like, I mean, what's your thought when you first even find out that there was a place you could do it online? I mean, did you realize that? Did you think it was as like 
big as it was going to be? Or did you think, oh, this is a novel thing. We can throw it in. I, I had, oh, I had obviously no idea it would get as big as it did. I thought it would always be kind of this little, yeah. you know, backroom thing. Uh, yeah, I can remember. So like one of them was called like worldsexforum.net or something. And it was this crazy, like kind of very... Um, almost like 4chan-esque kind of like not mean like that but just really uncategorized random un- unsupervised bulletin boards where you would just go right. in and you know post your things and if if they had high tech and you had high tech you could put a picture in there oh my goodness uh, so it was it was very different and then like the coming of like Craigslist changed things yeah um, yeah I had to kind of go back and like Go through my like go through my memory, so to speak, and remember how that transitioned. But I do remember like getting a website and persuading my friends that they too needed to have a website. You were the early adopter of your crew. I, I was one, yeah. yeah. I was, yeah. I definitely was one, um, and because I I had the column then by, and so I was kind of looked to as a as a leader. But there, you know, in truth, there were there were like seven other sex workers in Seattle that and then that I knew, and I knew them all. So we all talked. I mean, of course, there were more, but because there was not as much community then as there is now, I only knew like seven other sex workers. Uh, so it was really easy for us all to talk to each other. <laughs> and I imagine as the internet got more and more, you know, complex and everything, just it was easier and easier to build that community, mm-hmm. I assume. Yeah, like, absolutely. you know, did, were, when Facebook finally comes out, like, was, you know, was there a little group that somebody made? Wow. Is there a. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Immediately. Yeah. I mean, this is like now you're getting into history that's so busy that it's impossible for me to even tell you uh, all of it. Uh, but yeah, there. Uh, and there are always overlaps between like because I'm part of the kink community. I saw like within the kink community, like the rise of professional dominance begin to become a kind of semi-respectable thing to the kink community, which had not always been. Right. Uh, and I. So, yeah, I had to kind of go back and think about what it was like for straight escorts to make that transition. Uh, but I do like I remember when the escort agency that I had worked for, uh, which is wasn't is a great agency, went online and started having pictures of the people who worked for it with the faces blurred. But that was a big move. Yeah, and it was bold. It was considered very like, oh, you're getting a new territory. That's wild. What was what was screening clients like? I mean, I guess back in print and then those early internet days. Because like I, my listeners have now heard a lot from various sex workers about like the screening process. So they have a, they have a decent idea of that, but like back then, like that's. Yeah. None of that existed back then. So like, did you just not screen or was there a different process? Well, okay. Anytime. I feel like I'm getting like the whore history. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's awesome. <laughs> um, so everyone has a screening process, right? Yeah. Whether that screening process is you talking to someone or whether you like run their information in some way, but like, Anytime like someone comes to you and you're assessing him as a possible client, that is screening. Okay, uh-huh. so it's 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 wrong to say so and so doesn't screen. And, it was and, more analog back then. It was like it just maybe more gut instinct. Well, yeah, I, I screened by sheer gut instinct for the vast majority of my career as an escort and for a large part of my career as a dominatrix. I did not did not check IDs. I did not run down like uh, real addresses or real works. I did not do any of that. People do that now, and I think it's great that they do it. Um, I did never do it. I just screened on gut instinct alone. I mean, is that how you still screen today? I don't see new clients anymore. What? Oh, I haven't had to see new clients in over a decade, my dear. That's that's incredible. It's really not that unusual no, for Don. I, I, I have no idea. Uh, I guess that's I, true. You don't know. I, always, I still yeah. think you're a man whore. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I love it. Look, aspiring. Uh, so yeah, the screen was all gut instinct back then. Yeah, I would, I would make someone talk to me on the phone, you know, speak that I may see thee, yeah. and I would ask them questions, and I would consult my gut. Okay. And 
What I, is there anything that like kind of tangible that you would notice that would turn you off to someone or not? Oh yeah, so, I mean there were there were definitely things I was looking for. Uh, one of my things that I would be kind of evasive and hard to pin down about dates, and I would make you call me two or three times to actually get a date with me because I was seeing how you handled being told no or Ooh. not yet. And if someone was got really aggressive and but pushed back, would you mean I have to wait? Okay, you're instantly a no. Yeah. But if someone's like, okay, I understand, I'll call you Tuesday. Okay, it's almost like your first assignment. Like, mm-hmm. like right. if you say, eh, maybe not yet, call me next week. If they say, yes, mistress, you're like, okay, all right, probably step in the right direction. Yeah. What are you going to call you next week? Oh, yeah. Off, out, click by, click by. Wow. I was ruthless. I mean, I, I was telling my friends at that time, you should be refusing 70 to 80% of the people that call you. Wow. That is the ratio of time wasters, assholes, a few dangerous fuckheads, but just mainly just time wasters and people who are not. So there's about 20% of those guys are going to be great clients. And those are the guys you're looking for, but most of them are not with it, with a, with a, a live phone, with an ad yeah. that you're just answering. What What's, what's one thing you really love about today's day and age for doing sex work? And what's something that you also miss from the old time in sex work that you wish kind of was still here? I love that I don't have to answer a live phone anymore, that I don't have to literally pick up a phone and talk to a stranger and try to assess. Like now it's, now if someone were to approach me, it would be digitally, right? Uh-huh. It would be an email or something like, something like that. It would be an email. I don't do text with, with people. So it would be an email or a message to my, my, and I would have time to kind of assess them that way because it's a whole different way of screening someone through the written word. Yeah. Right? If it's on the phone, you almost have to, you, you can't be silent for too long. You got to answer one way or the other at right. some point. And I would, I mean, I would be really meta and say to you, you know, you're a stranger who just called me and I'm trying to decide whether I should allow you into a room with me. So I want to talk to you a little while longer so that I can get a sense of who you are. So keep talking to me. Tell me about yourself. Do you have a dog? What's your dog's name? And when, when people talk, if you listen and you pay attention, you can figure out who they are. Yeah. Um, And I'm here. (laughs) So it worked. (laughs) Uh, And I mean... Uh, in all the years that I've been, over 20 years that I've been a sex worker, I've had like five experiences where I thought, oh shit, I might really be in danger here. And all five of those turned out, I, I was not physically harmed, but I, it was it was a close call. Those are people you did meet up with. I did meet then. up with, I was in the room with, and I thought, shit, this might go sideways. This guy seems a little dodgy. He seems a little crazy. I'm afraid he might hurt me. I need to start talking my way out of this. And on all occasions, I succeeded in talking my way out of it. Right. Um, so, but, you know, five occasions over a 20-year period, I don't. That, I that's, that's, that's a pretty good that's ratio. pretty good odds, yeah. Yeah. And, and what's something you miss from the old era? There used to be a great deal of separation that you could make between your professional persona and your private life. And that's really gone. Um, and... I complain about it, but I've participated as much as anyone. The rise of social media and yeah. the internet in general has led to a lessening of privacy and, um, yeah, I guess just privacy, I would call it. And I miss that occasionally. I, I can't like re- run back time and take back all the things that I've said about myself. It sort of seems silly now for me to be shy and talk about my privacy. But if I had to do it all over again and I knew what I knew now, I would do it a little differently. So would you not like do the column, do some of the media that you did early on? No, I definitely would have done all the like media stuff that I did. I, I incorporated, there was an era of my life where I was really incorporating my real life and my work life into one big bowl. Oh really? Um, and it was an interesting era of my life. Um, but I'm not doing that anymore. Sure. Yeah, no, clearly. But, uh, what, what, I guess was there a particular 
did something like happen in all that or did you just kind of did it start to feel icky what it let me think about this answer for a minute sure that's okay before the internet clients and sex workers like were very fearful of each other each of us were afraid that the other one was going to harm them or expose them or do something bad to them. And so there was this tension between the client and the sex worker um, that was not overcome. Like you didn't, in my experience at that time, then one, you never transcended the, the tension and, the, and like you never like talked to a client when you weren't with him, for example. Right. Um, now it's completely different. Like, and, and this is true of everyone. It used to be like, you know, at five o'clock, the factory bell rang and the whistle blew and you went home and that was it and your boss had no contact with you until you came back into work the next day the way they have it today in germany yeah is that how it works (laughs) oh yeah it's illegal it's basically illegal to make your employees check like they're not allowed to check their emails when they leave for the day like they're just not uh you have to like you could call them and break the rules a little bit but like you can't force them to like be available via email outside work hours I was like, oh, man, that will never happen in in a capitalist society. Right. That is – so that used to be true for sex workers too. Like there was never any – and now it's – When you're off the clock, you're off the the clock. clock. Yeah. You you walked out and and it – I mean that's not to say that when it was a traumatic thing or a bad thing. It was just when you were not working, you were not working. Uh, Talk to the porn girls today. They're always on. They got to be ready to sext, cam, take pictures, Snapchat, selfie, Instagram, tweet. It's like – when, when do you take a shit? I don't know. It's yeah. that's, and that's what I mean by like, yeah, your, your, your work life and your personal life become mixed up in this bowl where you're always kind of working. Uh-huh. Um, and I think a lot of Americans in all kinds of jobs feel that way. Uh, and I know that it took me a while to like when this first started happening more, I was annoyed that my clients could would assume that I was just available for them to talk to at a moment's notice. And then I realized, oh, that's how they're getting treated, too. Uh, They're just acting like other people treat them. Their boss calls them at 7.30 at night and demands, you know, that they do X thing. So, of course, they're going to call me at 9 o'clock in the morning. I want to talk to me about something. I'm like, what are you calling me at 9 a.m. for? Are you crazy? But they don't, like, they, it was a reflection of the larger culture. So what is the thing that you would do differently? What would I do? Um, well, you were saying that if you said looking back that you might do some things a little differently. I, I would have, like, I would have. It's hard to explain without talking about things that I don't want to talk about. Frankly. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, I I talked a lot about my my personal life uh, and my lovers in a public way, and like the column and stuff. Or? Yeah, gotcha. Okay. And so it, none of it was bad, and and like yeah. nothing bad happened exactly. It's and just, it was print. It's gone now. It's like uh, <laughs> where is it? It's in a lamp. Right. But for the people who know me and who are clients of mine, like that's forever with them. Like sure. now they know this about me. And I'm lucky and that all my clients are guys that are great and I love them to pieces. And but I've had people who did not have very good boundaries with me in the past um try to start like like I would throw parties at my house, sure. right? This would be the parties of me and my friends. Because like I'm on FetLife, someone gets on FetLife and posts, hey, Matisse had an awesome rockin' party at her house last night. Here's a picture of it. Someone who's a client of mine who's kinky, who's also on FetLife, sees that photo and is like, how come you didn't invite me to your party? Because on FetLife, instead of having a... A, even if you want to still have another alter ego, just a different alter ego for your personal I, yeah, life. Like, I yeah. didn't realize I was going to need that. Like I didn't, I just didn't ever think that my two worlds would collide. So oh. yeah, like Fet Life was a perfect example of where like my professional persona and my social life persona began to overlap. And yeah, like people were, people, clients were literally asking me, why didn't you invite me to that party at your house? And I'm like, because that's a house where I'm living with my lover 
and it wouldn't be appropriate, yeah. uh, but they didn't understand that. And I can understand why, because to them, they didn't see that there was a separation. They they know me as Mistress Matisse, and this is Mistress Matisse, and so Mistress Matisse. And I'm like, but there's another side of me that is not always right. available for you. Some people, you know, everyone has an emotional relationship with me, right? I have, because that's that's why I don't see new clients. Like, I have people that I have built relationships with that I've been seeing for 10 and 15 years. Yeah. And it's a real relationship. Yeah. It's a relationship in a bubble, right? It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't change. I haven't kept a friend for 10 years. <laughs> that's incredible that you've, you've got financial relationships for that long. <laughs> well, I mean, and they're, I mean, they're real relationships to me. Like, I... Like I have, like I can remember one time when I was deathly, deathly sick with some kind of flu. One of my clients, who's a doctor, came over and took care of me. Isn't that convenient? Like so, yeah. Like I have, like these guys will like show up for me when I need them. So it's it's not like I don't want them to know about my life and I don't care about them. It's just yeah, I do need time to be down and be you know just in my sweats and in my you yeah. know jammies and stuff. And it's it's hard because each person who kind of wants you to be fabulous for them. They're only thinking about themselves. They don't understand there are a hundred other people who also just want you to be fabulous. Just this one time for me. But if you are always fabulous, then you never get to stop. They don't realize. Yeah, they think like, what's the big deal? I'm just asking you this one time, not realizing they're one of 50. And I'm actually an introvert, right? I'm not an extrovert who gets energy from talking to other people. Like when I'm on, I'm on. But when I'm off, I'm very low key and very chill. Uh, So so yeah, like sometimes like on, on, on Twitter, this will happen. I will say something like about a political thing and some will say, oh, well, you should go and dom that politician and Tom. I'm like, I don't want to top him. I don't want to be a dominatrix to him. He doesn't deserve me yeah, topping right, him. Yeah, he does not <laughs> deserve me at all. And I don't, I'm not like a walking fetish doll. I don't, like I'm not walking around carrying a whip all the time. Like I go to the grocery store, I clean out the cat litter. I'm just a regular person. And I need space to be a regular person too. Yeah. But, you know, I, I can't really complain since I am the one who created, you know, this Frankenstein's monster, so. Um, tell me a little bit about Velvet Swing. Tell, uh, tell us all about Velvet, Velvet Swing. Swing. I, Velvet Swing is awesome. <laughs> I love Velvet Swing. Um, so, like, I enjoy weed. We all enjoyed our legal weed here. I have enjoyed b- weed before it was legal. When you first go into a weed shop and you look at how many different products there are in there, you're like, you have, I had no idea you could make this many things out of weed. Like, <laughs> just, I thought you smoked it or maybe you made it in a cookie or whatever. I had no idea there. But, but I, I did know that weed lube existed because, uh, back in the day, my friend Chelsea and I, she, she used to make it. I, I consumed it mainly and she made it. And sometimes I financed that whole operation. I like how you say consumed. It. consumed uh, that's, that is a way of saying, <laughs> that's a way of expressing using lube. I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> With little shoulders, I used it. <laughs> I used it. Well, I I'm careful. Like, there's one cannabis scientist between Chelsea and I, and it's not me. It's Chelsea. Okay. She is the brains behind this whole operation. I am the showman uh, and the the razzle dazzle. But she would make it, and uh, we would both use it, and it was awesome. But it was this oil, right? And women's bodies don't usually like oil on their private parts. It's okay. not a good thing. Um, I'll write that. It down. makes them unhappy. Some women do. There's no true, but uh, many women not so much. So we got legal weed here, and I said to her, like, God, we should make that lube you just make. And she's like, yeah, I'd like to do that, you know. And then uh, – <laughs> Like calling your friend be like, yo, remember those brownies? Just, just, like, just like, hey, you remember we, that thing we used to do? Let's get the <laughs> weed band back together. I'm kind of that kind of girl. I just get on my – I call like call. I'm like, hey, let's do this thing. Yeah. So I was talking about that. Hey, let's do this thing. And I, I then I – 
met up with someone who had been a friend of mine who said, hey, I'm going to go be the CEO of this pot company. And this pot company has figured out a way to make weed water soluble. And I went, click, this is what I need to do. And I said, I want to talk to you. I went and got my friend Chelsea and said, look, we're going to pitch these people and we're going to do this thing. We're going to make a water-based weed lube. Let's do it. Kind of just thinking like, let's put on a show in the barn. Like, it'll be fun. It'll be a laugh. Uh, but like, so we pitched him and I was a little bit surprised when they said, yeah, let's do it. I was like, oh shit, now we're, it's on. We're really doing yeah. this thing. So, uh, so yeah, we partnered up with a larger company, but we, Velvet Swing is its own company. Uh, and they have the technology to make it water soluble. And we have this magic formula that makes ladies have better orgasms. And together we are making Velvet Swing. And it's, uh, it has been a roller coaster ride through, all kinds of things for the last three years because while legalized weed is the wild, wild west and every day I work in legalized weed makes me understand more that sex work must be decriminalized because the way that we're addressing weed and how and where it is used and where it is sold and how it is, all of that, you cannot translate that to a person. Like it, it hardly even works with weed. You could never control sex the way you are. They're trying to control weed. So are you so, talking about legalization versus decrim? Yeah, the idea that like you can legalize weed in a in a way, but like yeah, you can legal. You, <laughs> you can can't le- legalize a human. You can you can you legalize objects. You yeah. decriminalize humans, right? Oh, I like that. Yeah, legalize objects, decriminalize people. Because sex is a large and vaguely defined set of behaviors or activities. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. You can't like see it or put it on a table or weigh it or test it. It's not an object. So things... I mean, like- I weigh myself. I, <laughs> I figured out how to do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but sex is like, okay, so even now you look at prostitution laws, what constitutes sex? Right. Like, you know, any penetration, however slight, like so, or, or, the, or touching of this with that. But there are lots of things, like I can dance around naked in front of somebody. It's not technically sex, but it's sexy. It's like when Patreon, they tell us like, well, you can't, we don't want porn on here, but you can have nudity stuff. And they're like super like weird about the specifics of mm-hmm. each like rule of what type of thing. Like you can't have a hard cock, but you can have a soft penis, right. which is weird. It makes my... My job of taking penis pictures very difficult because uh, I gotta make them like I gotta make them look good, but without being too erect, you know. Right. But but though you know, so I've I've argued with them forever. They keep going, well, it has to not be like something that's meant to arouse. I'll be like, what about a, a, a pair of feet? And they're like, those are fine. I'm like, well, feet arouse a lot of fucking people, right? So I don't think y'all get what you're like. I don't think you guys understand what you're even saying. That's you're exactly right. You have exactly so like weed is a thing you can put it on the table and you and I can both look at it and agree that is weed. It's yeah. objectively true. This is weed on the table in front of us. However, you know I can put feet in front of you and like you may go mm, that's fine. And other guys like oh my god that is the hottest thing I've ever seen in my life. You know it's so subjective that it can't be legalized the way that weed can. And this is an argument that I I keep having over and over again online. People saying no legalize like no decriminalize there must be no criminal penalties for me saying to another person hey i'll have sex with you if you give me a hundred dollars like that's not a criminal act me saying that but it's a great deal (laughs) it would be a really great deal it's way under market rate (laughs) (laughs) one of my one of my uh plans for my retirement is when i'm like a really old lady is i'm gonna like take a sign that says blow jobs twenty dollars i'm gonna walk up and down in front of city hall with it until someone arrests me and then i'm gonna test give you a test case and then take to the Supreme Court, but I'm going to be an old lady with a wheelchair, and I'm going to be out there taking my teeth out. I will give you a damn blowjob for twenty dollars right here in the courthouse steps. Will you be staying I... here in Seattle? I just, <laughs> I'll put it in my calendar. 
I'll put a Twitter notice out. I'll send you an email invite. Yeah, right. That'll be the day. But yeah, I'll I'll have my lawyer all lined up and I will be a test case. And we will, if they haven't gotten it fixed by the time I'm ready to retire, I will totally be the test case. That will be very sad. I I have little bits of hope uh, that we are on a faster path. I hope so too. Than when you're in old age. It is so heartening. Yeah, it is the only kind of thing keeping me going right now in this dark time is that, yeah, we're actually finally getting some traction people are actually saying our names and talking about our issues and it's it's huge to me so that that is definitely a hopeful sign yeah yeah well uh mistress matisse thank you so much for chatting with me it's oh. it's truly an honor to finally like <laughs> you know meet you meet you and speak with you and like i said big fan oh, uh you're very sweet I, you know I try. Uh, <laughs> um, but where can people find you? Where can they buy some Velvet Swing? Well, if you're in California or Washington State, you can absolutely buy Velvet Swing at, at all your finest cannabis stores everywhere. On our website, www.velvetswing.com, we have an interactive map. And you can enter your address, and it will show you the location closest to you. Unfortunately, because of federal laws, it's only available in Washington State and California. So we can't ship it or anything like that. Really we can bummer. ship as close to the border. As you can get to. <laughs> the laws around that are really quite, quite strict. Uh, so uh, hopefully somewhere will be everywhere soon. Uh, and I hang out on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. Um, uh, How do my, we smell, spell M- Matisse? Uh, M-A-T-I-S-S-E, like the artist from whom I borrowed it. Uh, wait, who's the artist? Henri Matisse. I'm, I am not culture. Oh, I'm going to have to spank you. you I mean, that would and- be... <laughs> I feel like I'm not even kinky, but I feel like that's just an honor. It, it would be. And I, so yes, Henri Matisse. Thank you, Henri Matisse, for lending me your name. Thank you so much. And I uh, want you to go ahead and say goodbye to everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening to me. Had a great time, and y'all have a great evening. The only thing I regret is that I, I forgot to, I was so, <laughs> look, I don't get nervous terribly often doing these things. But geez, meeting Mistress Matisse, I was like, oh, oh gosh, uh, I, 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 I was so nervous, I forgot to ask for a picture. So, oops, I, next time, I hope. Uh, Matisse, she was, oh gosh, so great. Hope you enjoyed her. Check her out on the things. Uh, for me, you should be following me on the social media, of course. You Come on, are you not following me after all these years? I'm on Twitter at the Billy Presida. I'm on Instagram at Billy is Presida. And you can like the Man Whore Podcast Facebook page. If you want to shoot me an email with your comments, your questions, your titty pictures, your criticisms, uh, things you want to say or ask Megan, you can send them on over to manwhorepod at gmail.com. And whether you're brand new to the show or you've been listening uh, since I launched this bad boy back in 2014, I would love to see you join the fan whore community on Patreon. Uh, and, and I'd love to see you connect with like-minded listeners, connect with me. I'd love to learn more about you and give you some dope ass behind the scenes bonus content. Become a member today for as little as $2 at patreon.com slash man podcast. That's Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash man podcast. Uh, next week, uh, well, this Saturday, of course, we're going to have another Corona cast, part five. Next week on the show, I've got uh, Steph Autary. Uh, she is a sexuality writer. 
she she's known uh, how I I use butt toys for quite a few years now since she first interviewed me. <laughs> uh, looking forward to sharing her with y'all in a little bit. And until then, stay safe, wash your dicks, stay slutty. <laughs>